Well, good morning uh, to those of you that I haven't had a chance to meet yet. You, you saw me just now struggling to picture my ear as I was trying to put this on. I couldn't remember how the ear was shaped uh, for a moment there. But uh, I'm very thankful uh, for Pastor Bill's introduction. I had prepared to do a lot of that, and he did all my work for me. So you know about uh, my dear family. You know we brought some friends, uh, dear friends Aiden and Lydia. I officiated their wedding four months ago with... 11 people uh, right when the the shutdown really was escalating and uh, really precious friends that we brought with us and uh, you know that I was at Southern Seminary I was actually there at the same time as Pastor Steve um, and we have mutual friends and a lot of mutual professors and experiences but uh, I, do, I don't recall if we met there we, we met at a pastor's fellowship back here in Ohio um, but I just want to echo what Pastor Bill said that uh, friends like Steve are very important for pastors like me. It's, I've been a pastor for four years now, and friendships like that have been invaluable. Uh, so I really love your pastor. Uh, I've prayed with him. I've uh, eaten and drank coffee with him. And, uh, yeah, it's just very important to have friends like that. So I'm thankful to be, have been introduced. I'm also thankful to have worshipped with you already this morning. I, I mean that, that I've been encouraged. My heart has been calmed. I've been focused. Uh, the readings and the prayers were all very much in line with a lot of the themes that we're going to be talking about today. And I want you to know that as much as I'm able, not knowing uh, any of you, or and not being able to see your faces, uh, as much as I'm able, I love you. Uh, I love you as those who have the same spirit living inside, the same Father who is called and the same Savior who has bled for us. Uh, I love you, and I love the church. I, I very much am honored to have been asked to come and preach here this morning. I love seeing new churches and worshiping with new groups of believers. And then though we've prayed several times, I would like to now pray because I am very eager to serve you in the word. So let's pray. Lord God, it's, a, it's, a, it's quite an irony that with all of your majesty, you would entrust uh, a fallen person like me with trying to point people to your majesty. Uh, but Lord, you do that. You work through jars of clay. And Lord, I pray that you would display your glory perhaps in a way that many of us have never, uh, have never seen. Lord, do that to my heart as I preach. Help us to have a, just such a big view of you and to be satisfied in you. And then, Lord, as, as I'll seek to apply, as I'll seek to help these dear brothers and sisters to know uh, things that they can do with their lives in response to your word, Lord, I pray that you would do that work. Uh, you will do a far better job of applying your word than I ever could. And Lord, I pray you would do that in each individual heart. So be with me uh, this morning. Be with these people this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Today I was burdened to bring you a message from Isaiah 40. I think you, you know that. Uh, but if you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn there now. Isaiah 40 is a fantastic chapter. It's one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. It's uh, one of the chapters, probably the main chapter, that Behold Our God is, is drawn from. It's one of my favorites. But I'm not burdened to preach it just because it's one of my favorites. 
I'm burdened to preach it because I think it is a passage that people need to hear about in the year 2020, uh, dealing with COVID-19, dealing with uh, civil unrest, dealing with all kinds of swirling philosophies and hateful people. This is a passage we need. This chapter was written to a people in exile, or written to a people that were about to be in exile. Uh, It is written by Isaiah in the 8th century B.C., and he's writing to Israelites who would then be in exile in the 6th century B.C. And this passage looks forward to a day when the Israelites who had sinned, who had been put into exile, would be told that they uh, they had served their time, that their punishment was over, and that they were about to be able to come back into the land. Uh, This passage, written ahead of time, was written to a stranded people who God had punished, but who God now had promises to give. So I've titled this message, God's Promises for a Stranded People. So we're going to look at God's promises for a stranded people. That's what this passage is, but I'm also applying it to Christians today. And saying there are promises in this passage for us as stranded people today. I know I'm not the only one who has felt somewhat stranded over the last couple of months. I'm not sure if you had to stop meeting for for any length of time. I'm getting nods. Uh, Didn't you feel stranded then? Didn't you feel hollow then? Uh, And now that we're back together, we're we're gathering, uh, the events of the last several months have reminded all of us the world is not our home. The attempts that are being made, if you're on Facebook at all, uh, I'll pray for you, (laughs) but if you're on Facebook at all, you're seeing all these people who who are saying, this is what we need to make the world right. And as Christians, we, we, we see the hopelessness of their philosophies and their, their, their ideas about making a utopia here on earth. This world is not our home. I've seen so much disagreement in our world, but one thing that no one disagrees about, no one uh, is saying this is heaven. Everyone knows it is not. Everyone knows there's something wrong. Everyone knows this world is fallen, even if they wouldn't use those categories. So we're stranded. We're people that felt like we weren't at home when we couldn't get into church. We're people that now as we meet, we look out at the world and we know we're not home. And furthermore, we have a a biblical lens that we can look at. As those who have trusted Jesus Christ to save us and fundamentally alter our identity, uh, we, we say amen to Paul's words in Philippians that our citizenship is in heaven. We say amen uh, to, to the author of Hebrews who says uh, that they, they did this thing, they, 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 they pursued these things looking for a better country, a heavenly one. The, the 12th chapter of Hebrews that says here we have no lasting city. We say amen, this is not our home. We're a stranded people. But I want to ask, as we're going to look at a historical account of a stranded people, can I use this passage? Am I allowed to use this passage for Christians today? And I would say yes and no. These promises that we're going to read about today 
include a return of the nation of Israel to their land. And that's clearly not our promise. We recognize that. We know how to read. But there are many prophecies in the Bible that have promises that are fulfilled in multiple senses at multiple times. So a passage written to one audience a long time ago can have meaning for us as well. And, and, and I heard an analogy once, and it stuck with me of what this is like. Imagine that you're hiking, and you can see mountain peaks up in the distance. And because of your angle, the way you're looking, and maybe because of your inexperience, there might be one mountain peak that is not far away, and one that's a little further, and one that's a little further still. But from your point of view, they all look like the same mountain peak. And only with time or experience do you realize that while you thought you were looking at one thing, you were seeing three things. One close, one a little further, and one a little further still. That's the way it sometimes is with biblical prophecy. So David will write something, and he'll say, uh, this, is, this is how I'm, I'm going to feel, and, and we see, okay, here's what David's feeling. And then Jesus comes along, and He's using the same words. And David, uh, our Lord says, spoke of him. We know that's the case in this passage. There are promises to Israel that are not far off. They're going to come back soon. We also know there were promises that were a little further off because you're going to see there are words here that are quoted by John the Baptist. Uh, there are prophecies here that were fulfilled in Jesus' time. And then there's a, there's a third peak, there's a third fulfillment uh, when we see timeless truths about God, things that are true today. So there were things that were going to be true for Israel in the 6th century B.C. There were things that were going to be true in the time of Jesus. And there are things that are true for us today. Here's why I share all that. Isaiah 40 contains promises for us today. They contain promises for a stranded people that were fulfilled for Israel, promises that are true for us because of Christ, and all these promises are given with a picture of a timeless God. We feel stranded as we wait for the world to go back to normal. We feel frustrated with the media, the government, that one friend on Facebook. We feel a sense of community stress. I don't know how many times I've felt myself picked back up and then someone else brings me down. Even if I feel like I can fight to keep myself in the right mindset, someone else won't. And we may have felt like this for a while. You may feel like you're inching closer to a breaking point of some, point, of some kind. If any part of you is aware of any weakness in you, then we need to hear from a God who is not like us. A God who has no weakness. A God who has no limits. A God who has no frustrations that he can't control. If there's any part of us that feels weak, then what we need is not self-help. What we need is a look at the God who is not weak. Isaiah 40 might be the best passage in the Bible uh, to do that for us. So we're going to be strengthened by looking at God. And there are going to be seven statements from this passage that I'd like to use. All statements about God, because that's what we need. 
to take our eyes off of internet debates, off of ourselves, off of our governing officials, and put our eyes on the God who has often helped people through far worse crises than we have faced. So now we're going to read Isaiah 40 together. Comfort, comfort, my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span? Enclose the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are counted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? An idol? A craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for it silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth, when he blows on them and they wither, and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me, that I should be like him, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong and power, not one is missing. 
Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? Have you not known, have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youth shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. You likely recognized many verses in that chapter. Famous words. But I want to take you to start right back to the start, to verses 1 and 2. And my first statement, the first thing that we need to see about this passage is that forgiveness has come. Look again at verse 2 in particular. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. I'm convinced this is one of those promises I was talking about at the start, where it has one fulfillment pretty soon, uh, but God inspired the author to use language that would remind us of the fulfillment that we have in Christ. In other words, the people of Israel are told one thing, you are, your sins have been paid for, you, you, your iniquity has been pardoned, you're going to get to come out of exile, but he used language that we hear and we say, those are the words that I've heard about myself when I trusted in Jesus Christ and like Abraham, my faith was counted to me as righteousness, my iniquity has been pardoned. We can't help but hear these words and think of these things. We can't help but think that like Israel, whose, whose punishment was sufficient and has received forgiveness, that Jesus' punishment for us was sufficient and we've received forgiveness. And I want to point out a couple of things here. I, want, I wanted to bring us back here for a couple of reasons to start. The first thing I want us to see is I want us to, to, to marvel at the contrast of what forgiveness used to be like and what forgiveness is like now. Because in this day and age that we're reading about, forgiveness, uh, two things, forgiveness always came uh, from the person, that the payment for sin always came from the person. Whether it came from a sacrifice in a system that had daily, weekly, monthly, and yearly sacrifices, or in this case, after punishment, the, 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 provide, the provision of uh, paying for sins came from the person. And the second thing, it was always temporary. Man, we had to do it again tomorrow. Uh, the book of Hebrews, the high priest goes into the, 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 the holy places regularly, uh, first for his, the sins of the people and then for his own sins as well. He has to go regularly. You know that when you read your iniquity is pardoned and you apply those words to your situation as a Christian, that is no longer that way. You know that you are not responsible to pay for your sins. And you know that your forgiveness is eternal. Hebrews 11.25, consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost because he always lives. Those priests were many in number because they kept dying. Our priest continues forever. He holds his priesthood permanently. You are saved to the uttermost. 
The second reason I wanted us to bring back here, I wanted to take us back here, is because the, the idea of us being saved, the idea of us being forgiven, us being made right with God, that promise stands as a gateway to all of the other promises of Isaiah 40. In other words, you don't have any right to any of the promises of Isaiah 40 unless you have accepted that first promise. None of the things that we've read about, about God's character, about God's fatherly love, about God's might, but not just his might that crushes nations, but his might that gives power to the faint, none of those are good news unless you have accepted this first promise that forgiveness has come. But once we have accepted this promise, brothers and sisters in Christ, just be reminded that no matter what else happens, you will never pay for even one of your sins. The nation of Israel could think of countless memories and countless pictures in their minds of sacrifices and now countless days in exile as the things that paid for their sins. You'll never know what that feels like. You might think you do. You might think you know what it feels like to pay for a sin. You don't. We've never paid for even one of our sins. Christ did it for us. Not only that, but there is not one sin in you that has not been paid for. So not only do I not know what it's like to pay for my sins, there are no sins in me that are still standing against me. Colossians 2.14, these he set aside with its legal demands, nailing it to the cross. Once we have accepted this promise, man, we, we have no idea what it's like to have paid for our sins. We can just say, praise the Lord, I'm in. I'm part of the family of God. And then we can come and see the rest of these promises. And, and the one I want to point out now, as we kind of move to my next point, I want to point out the fatherly care God has for his children. That is yours if you've come to him through Christ. Look down, verse, uh, verse 11. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. See the fatherly care of your God. I wonder if you see yourself like this. If you think that God has given you power so that you don't need him, or if you, if you see, like this passage says, that no, I, I, I get weak, I get tired, and I need to be carried. That's what God loves to do for those whom he has forgiven. That's what God loves to do for those who were enemies of God, but who are now his children. So if you are in Christ, you are a new creation, even if you don't feel like a new creation, and God loves to carry you in his arms. And this God, who is kind and gentle, is also profoundly glorious. And this leads us to our next statement, and actually the next several statements will all have the word cannot in them, uh, because our God cannot be limited. So my second statement is that the glory of God cannot be missed. The glory of God cannot be missed. I'm getting this from verses 3 through 5, the, the, the voice that says, let's make straight a highway for our God that removes obstacles, words that 
John the Baptist and Jesus quoted about John the Baptist's ministry. Uh, This is drawn from a cultural analogy. When some important person, some ruler was coming for a visit, they would send people on ahead to clear out obstacles to allow the leader to get to his destination in minimal time and with maximum comfort. Let's get rid of the bumps. Let's make it straight. Uh, But there's more here. There's more going on in this passage than just uh, making the way easy for God. This isn't about comfort. This is about visibility. Right? The, uh, we, we know of the phrase, the big sky country. There's no obstacles. We can see really far. God sends ahead John the Baptist to clear these things so that his glory is visible. That's what this passage says. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed. All flesh shall see it together. Let's get rid of these obstacles so that we can see God. The glory of God can't be missed. Here's what I mean by that. We know from Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17, Jesus says that that he has the glory of God and he gave it to his disciples. But not everyone saw it. There's coming a day when they will. Philippians 2, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. This will happen And it will happen, our passage says, because the mouth of the Lord has spoken. We need to think about that. There's coming a day when no one's going to miss this. There's going to be no disagreement about the fact that Jesus is Lord. There might be disagreement about what to do with it, but everyone is going to say together, on bended knee, Jesus is Lord. The glory of God cannot be missed. We know this because of God's word, and and this leads us nicely to our next statement. God's purposes cannot be thwarted. God's purposes cannot be thwarted. And we get this from verses 6 through 8. A voice says, cry, and I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. What God is saying through Isaiah in these verses uh, is that God's word is secure. God's word will come true. God's word will stand, not like the grass, not like the flower. God's word will stand. These are famous words. Uh, The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of the Lord will stand forever. These are famous words because they're used... Several times in the Bible, they're used for different purposes. Uh, in First Peter, uh, these words are used to talk about the permanence of the Bible. Other things are temporary. The Bible lasts forever. In James, these words are used to talk about the temporary nature of all things human, saying riches are going to perish. So they're used in one place to talk about something that's temporary. They're used in another place to talk about something that's permanent. Here, they're being used to say that God's word is certain. Not just that it will last, but that it will happen. How do we know our iniquity is pardoned? How do we know the glory of God is going to be revealed? Because the word of the Lord stands forever. This reminds us of elsewhere in Isaiah that his word will not return void. And this idea that God's purposes cannot be thwarted is so valuable for the Christian. 
I can't tell you how many times I'm helping someone or trying to help someone who's struggling in their Christian life, and there are clear promises of God that they're not believing. There are clear promises of God that they just don't feel right now. We need to know that God's purposes cannot be thwarted. Uh, Before we allow ourselves to be anxious about our church, we need to remember that God said that he will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Before we allow ourselves to be anxious about finances, we can read what God has said about the birds and the flowers, that he clothes them and feeds them and he will do the same for you. Before we allow ourselves to be anxious about how we're feeling spiritually, We need to remember that he who began a good work in us will bring it to completion. Brothers and sisters in Christ, what God has said is not only true, it is certain. It is unchanging. It is permanent. And in this world, where one of the lessons of COVID-19 is that nothing is permanent, what we know today will, will be disproved tomorrow, what we say today will age poorly tomorrow, Where we don't know what tomorrow will hold, we can know that whatever things God has promised his children, these things cannot be thwarted. This is a vital step in your Christian maturity to seek out promises from God when you are feeling weak. Use Google. I do. Or write your pastor or a friend. But settle in your mind that you're going to go to God expecting that he has said something and expecting that he has a promise for you and expecting that his promises cannot be thwarted. Our passage goes on to give us a picture of the greatness of the God who says these things. So if we focus so far on his words and the character of his words, now uh, we, we, we see him. We're given a picture of his, his might, his size, Uh, And and, and my next statement is that God cannot be contained. God cannot be contained. How big is this God? How powerful is this God? This this pandemic feels pretty big. It's in every country. uh, Those that think there's a conspiracy. This conspiracy seems pretty big. It seems like there's a lot of power in the governments and the corporations and the media. Is our God up to this task? Well, our God is is beyond all that. Our God is without limits. Our God cannot be contained. I'm taking this from verses 12 through 16, which I'm I'm not going to read again. Uh, We we sang a lot of these words, uh, but these are about, these words give us a picture of all the things uh, that show us the size and scope of our God. And among all of these analogies, among all of these pictures, there's one I'm drawn to in particular. I love the water. I love sailing, I love swimming, uh, and I've, I've been scared by the water before, and I have an appreciation for the amount of water in the world. And so I'm most drawn to verse 12, that this God can hold the Mariana Trench and the Great Lakes and every pond and creek and puddle in the world in the hollow of his hand. And the idea here isn't just his strength, that he can uh, curl all the waters, but, but his size, that it's, it's in the hollow of his hand. You know, it's, it's kind of hard to hold things in the hollow of your hand. I, a lot of you have seen my kids. Uh, I have a four-year-old, and I have twins that are three. And, 
when I'm giving them a snack, I'm aware of how much they can hold before they drop. And so I think of raisins, and my son can maybe hold six or eight without dropping any. And the girls being a little smaller, they can hold about three. And water, which is much harder to contain than raisins, can be held in the smallest part of God's hand. And I want to point out something. These are amazing things, these words. But the idea here isn't even for us to calculate the size of our God. I don't know if we have any uh, people who enjoy math, but you could do a math problem with this to calculate the size of God's hand. If you said, okay, my hand is this many centimeters across and I can hold this many grams of water, uh, and if I figure out what scientists' estimations are of the amount of water on earth and divide that number by the amount of grams I can hold, and I, I probably hurt a lot of your brains. But besides doing that, I hope I illustrated to you that this exercise would be pointless. Because God doesn't say this to give us a clue to his size. God says this to say, I'm beyond even that. This analogy that blows our minds, that is so much bigger than us, it's, it's not an invitation here to calculate the exact size of God, but to be taken aback by the fact that our God is incalculable. He can hold far more than the waters. He can hold everything in the hollow of his hands. Because our God has no limits, he cannot be contained. And I wonder, while we are hurting people in a broken world who are frustrated, uh, if much of our difficulty, much of our problems can, can fall into two categories. One, where we are not believing that God is beyond limits. Or two, that we are not applying that truth to our hearts. One, maybe maybe we're not aware. Or if you are aware, two, maybe you need to grow in the discipline of telling yourself, this too is a small thing for my God. This broken relationship, this conflict, this quandary, this too is a small thing for my God. Our God cannot be contained, and he calls us to have faith, not anxiety. He calls us to have faith, not prideful frustration. And our passage next addresses a concern that these people would have been feeling. So imagine that you are an Israelite, and you have been exiled, and you have come into a new country, and they've changed your name, and they've erected statues, and they've carried off your, uh, your elements, your, your, your things from the temple, and they've shown those things to you, and they've paraded you around. Man, you would say, this is a pretty powerful nation, and they've really affected me. They've really changed the way I think. They've really changed my identity. Our fifth statement is God cannot be challenged. God cannot be challenged. Or if you'd like, you could say God has no rivals. There is no nation that troubles God. There is no government that impresses God. There's no government that ties his hands. We see this from verses 15 through 17. They're like a drop from a bucket. They're like dust on the scales. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel. All the nations are as nothing. They are counted by him as less than nothing. 
and emptiness. And then we look down at verses 23 and 24. He brings princes to nothing. He makes rulers as emptiness. They've been planted for just a few, a few short days. They're scarcely planted. And he blows on them. just, And they wither. And if we've read the Old Testament, we shouldn't be surprised. This is the God who destroys armies by making them hysterical. This is the God who has broken the will of kings, has convinced kings to, to decree things that aren't even in their best interests. He uses nations like puppets to accomplish what he wants. He turns the heart of the king like water in his hands. And you might have assumed this from the last statement. You know, if he can hold all the water in his hands, then of course he can uh, rule over the, the nations. But we actually have pictures here of God not being challenged by any power including the most powerful nations you can imagine. Colossians 1, he created the life of each person, person in those nations. Romans 13, he gives the authority to any authority that thinks that they've got there by hard work. Matthew 5, if they think that they're really good at cultivating the ground, they're really good at uh, helping the economy, he says, I, I send rain on the just and on the just, unjust. And if they think in any way that they're self-sufficient, uh, God says, I uphold the universe by the word of my power. It's because of this complete and utter power that Psalm 2 says that God laughs at those who have set themselves against the Lord. Those who say, let's burst their bonds apart and cast them away. Uh, and brothers and sisters in Christ, when we read those things, when we think about those things, and we see someone who thinks that they, can, that they can stand without God, who thinks that they can be made right in their own work, who thinks that they can make their own way through life, it should stir our hearts to evangelism. Like uh, the Lord says in, in, first Pe in Second Peter, uh, he is patient. That's the only reason he hasn't judged yet. He's patient, wanting some to be saved. That should stir us. That, that, that blindness of that counsel in Psalm 2 that says, let's burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords, that should stir our hearts to evangelism, to want to share the good news that liberates us from our delusion of power. But here, what's happening is this is a nation that is really impressed with the nations. Israel is really impressed with their oppressors. And this is just one more reason that God is saying uh, that he is not challenged. He has no rivals and he can be trusted. And this is good for us to know as well. I, I don't have any interest in making any kind of political statement about our government. I know that there are, are some who have no faith in our government. Uh, but whatever has caused you grief, whatever thing is out there that you think is uh, unconquerable, just remember that it has not challenged our God. Whatever philosophy that you've read on a friend's post that is so backwards and has broken your heart, uh, it has not given God the slightest headache. It has not caused our God to break a sweat. Believe that, brothers and sisters in Christ. Fix your eyes on the God who is bigger than all of the government's in the world. And the next 
statement transitions from this is what you need to know about God and now what do you do with that? You need to worship Him alone. So our sixth statement is that our God cannot be replaced. Our God cannot be replaced. There is no generic, off-brand, a little cheaper version of our God. And this statement comes from three verses, beginning in, in verse 18, going through verse 20, that starts with the phrase, to whom then? Who then will you liken God to? In light of everything we've just seen about our God, what on earth are you going to try to replace him with? And he tells us how worthless these idols are. They they are made of silver and gold, or in some cases wood. But verse 20, they are always set up by someone where they cannot move. An idol doesn't get to pick where it's put. They cannot move. Other passages tell us they can't see or hear either. But you know that. Uh, That's not really our temptation today, to set up a craft and convince ourselves It is a God. It was in this day and age, and it still is in a lot of the world. That's not our temptation. Uh, But I believe you're well taught, and, and you know that the application extends to anything that our hearts seek to set up as God. Anything that we go to and ask to perform a task that only God can perform. That is what our temptation is, to find something to replace God with. And in case we've forgotten, our description of idols in this passage is followed up by a, uh, a, a, a verse 22 that God sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a tent. Uh, you cannot replace this God. Uh, so I don't know you and I cannot guess what idols your heart is tempted to run to. I know which ones my heart is tempted to run to, and I know the human condition. But if you're willing to examine yourself, you can probably apply this more precisely to your own heart. You can recognize that you sometimes tend to try to replace God by asking something or someone else to satisfy you in a way that only God can. And if you're honest with yourself, And if you think about your experience with your idols, you know that it's always left you broken. Romans 6, what fruit do you have from those things of which you are now ashamed? The end of those things is death. And I say that to point out, God doesn't say, I am so big, you've messed up. God says, I am so big, I am not threatened. I am not challenged. My glory is coming. My word is secure. Come and worship me. Come and have my sweet fatherly care. Come and have my power. God has better things for us than our idols do. This is my seventh statement. God's ability cannot be questioned. And in particular, his ability that he gives to us. God's ability cannot be questioned. And I say it that way, it cannot be questioned because this is something that Israel did. He says, why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my right is disregarded by my God? You know, I don't know if you, you can think about this and you can relate to this, but when, when we sin, when we fail our Lord, 
Isn't that when our faith is weaker and we start to think, yeah, you know, I don't know if God's up for it. And it's ironic. I'm the one who did something wrong. And I say, I don't know that God is powerful anymore. Such is the blindness of our hearts. Such was the blindness of Israel who had sinned by idolatry and by not obeying the commandments and by uh, forsaking justice. And then when something happened, they said, God let me down on this one. God failed me. But God isn't just rebuking them for their questioning. Our God who is gentle and lowly, our God who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, he invites them, he reminds his people that this ability that cannot be questioned, he wants to give it to them. He wants to give it to his people yet again, his sinful people, his mistaken people, his foolish people. He wants to give them his care. He wants to care for you, beloved, with all of his power and ability that we've been talking about. He wants to give it to you. Read again with me verses 28 through 31. Have you not known, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. I, mean, I, don't, I don't know exactly what time Steve uh, clothed, closes the, the service. I think I'm probably getting pretty close. I'd like to conclude by, by thinking with you about what is meant by that phrase, those who wait for the Lord. Wow, we've read some incredible things about God. And if you've sang songs like Behold Our God or Holy, 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 or you've read Job talking about the might and size and power of our God, He says, I want to give power to the faint. It's for those who wait for the Lord. What does that mean? Waiting for the Lord is not just sitting still. It is not just removing all distractions and being completely at peace. It's not just clearing our schedule and sitting and waiting. That'd be great. Uh, But the Bible uses another phrase. Uh, sometimes it talks about those who walk with God. Waiting for the Lord is walking with the Lord. And don't get me wrong, there are times to find quiet. The God who praised Mary for sitting at Jesus' feet uh, is pleased when we prioritize time with the Lord. But this is the same God who calls us to go. This is the same God that calls us to As you go, make disciples of all nations. So we wait for him as we walk with him. We wait for him as we live our lives in conscience, faith toward him. We wait for God as we worship him with all of our lives. We read that in 1 Peter 2. He has saved us to be a people who proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. We are a worshiping people. That's, that's our identity in 1 Peter 2. We're, we're supposed to proclaim. And we don't just proclaim with our words. We proclaim with our life. Romans 12, we're to present our lives as an act of spiritual worship. Aren't we tempted to say, 
I can't worship because things are too crazy in my life. I can't worship this Sunday because the kids were a little too much work in getting to church. Um, If that analogy sounds oddly specific, uh, (laughs) that has happened to us. I can't worship because I feel dry. I can't worship because of what my, my family member, the choices they're making. I can't worship because I feel depressed. Beloved, we worship God any time we show how much he is worth. And when we hold on to him, though we feel like we're tearing apart, we're showing how much he's worth. When we trust in him, even though nothing we're seeing indicates that we can trust him, we're showing how much he's worth. When we worship through uh, teary eyes and a broken heart, we show how much he is worth. We worship our God every time we love our spouses out of obedience. We worship God every time we shoot up a quick prayer in the midst of a frustrating conversation. We worship God every time we read a few verses with sleepy eyes barely open. We worship God every time we take care of children that God has called us to love. We can worship God with our whole lives. We know this because God has called us to worship him with our whole life. And rather than being crushed by that request to worship God with your whole life, I would encourage you rather to be encouraged that this God who needs nothing would choose to be glorified in little old me. Again, 1 Peter 2, to offer spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You can glorify God in every little thing you do out of an attempt to love him and serve him. Don't feel crushed by that. Feel encouraged by that. Trust God. Wait for God. He is worthy. Let's pray. And again, Lord, I, I, I've used my words. I've used up all my, my energy. I, I can only trust you to apply these words to our hearts. I can only trust you to apply these words to my heart as I go out to live my life and as I try with my challenges to glorify you. Lord, I pray that your word would be ringing in my ears. I pray that this picture of you in your power and your ability and your love, uh, Lord, would be forming all of us into the image of Jesus Christ, which is the purpose of the church. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.